This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to contentmultiplied.com today. That's contentmultiplied.com. Thanks, Myla, and uh, let's go into the show. You are listening to Impact Hustlers and I am your host, Michael Schaprat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Manik Suri, founder of Therma, a company with a mission to reduce refrigerant emissions through smart sensors that help customers avoid failure of fridges, reduce food waste, reduce energy consumption, and the resulting carbon emissions. Therma is now used by large customers such as McDonald's, Marriott Hotels, and Domino's Pizza, and many others. And it's great to have you on the show, Manik, uh, to share a bit more on your journey and the lessons learned. Thanks for joining. Terrific to be here. Thanks so much for the warm welcome, Michael. I'm excited for the chat. Appreciate your time. Um, so let's start with your personal journey. When I looked a bit uh, through your previous career, I just found that you had quite a diverse career uh, as well. And you know, Therma has been hasn't been the first thing that you've been doing. Uh, you had quite a quite a career already. So I'd love to talk a bit more about. What drives you? Why are you doing what you do now? And how did you get here? Absolutely. Uh, I think the journey uh, is always uh, somewhat different than you know we expect when we get started. At least I've, I've never seen the path to be linear, even though I've sometimes imagined what I might be doing two years or five years out. Certainly didn't think I would be running a clean cooling company uh, 10 years ago or, or, or 20 years ago. Uh, in school, I uh, grew up in California. Went to college uh, back east in um, in uh, uh, a time when I really wanted to work around policy and government. I went to Harvard uh, for undergrad and later for law school. Um, I thought I might go into government and 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 work in you know, politics and policy. So I studied international relations. Uh, I got a master's in international relations from Cambridge uh, on a scholarship from Harvard. Uh, spent a year in England. Great time. Uh, I ended up. Uh, in finance, kind of accidentally, 
I uh, met someone uh, who made an introduction to a really interesting and creative fund called D.E. Shaw that was building out teams focused on emerging markets. And I had studied India and China in college and in my master's. So I went to work at D.E. Shaw for the gentleman who ran the firm, um, building out investing teams in Asia from 06 to 09. Uh, through that experience, I got uh, thinking about got to thinking about the intersection of capital and policy and decided to go back to law school and then went to work in the Obama White House uh, as a junior guy uh, on the economic policy team, uh, doing an internship and then a fellowship. And so I realized um, while working in government that uh, it's very different than you imagine. It's uh, The pace can be much slower. The politics can be much more challenging than the policy alone. And I think that's where I started thinking about uh, other ways to move the needle to try and have some positive social impact. At the time, I met a woman, Beth Novick. She was the deputy chief technology officer of the U.S. Uh, in the first Obama White House. She was also, as she jokes, a recovering lawyer uh, like myself, had gone to Harvard for undergrad 10 years before me. And um, she was working on ways to leverage technology to transform law and government. Um, and she'd written a book called The WikiGov, which I read and I listened to her talk. And the thesis and the theme uh, wa- was really powerful. Uh, technology is transforming social and commercial life, but law and government, even though they're so important for our society, are still run like it's 1950. And there's a huge opportunity there to leverage and build better technology for those areas. That's how I got inspired to move to tech. So I joined Beth when she left government. We started a center together at NYU where she teaches in Manhattan uh, called the Governance Lab, the Gov Lab. And then after helping her get that center off the ground, uh, I uh, had met a, a gentleman there, Aaron Cohen. He was our third co-founder. Aaron uh, was an internet entrepreneur who had been working in tech since the late 90s, and he teaches at NYU. He and I decided to to start a company together focused on this space around compliance and safety and regulation, but using technology to improve legacy workflows. And it just so happened that when we started that company, which was called Co-Inspect, uh, Chipotle, this big uh, restaurant chain in the U.S., had a food safety crisis. And a bunch of people started telling us, hey, you should check out the food supply chain. Food is a big problem in terms of safety and quality. There's a lot of legacy workflows there. If you can bring a compliance and regulatory product into the market, food is a great place to start. And that's how we ended up in the food supply chain, building tech for restaurants and retailers. And then fast forwarding a few years into that, we discovered that a big part of the problem in the actual safety and compliance had to do with the temperatures. And we were working on compliance thinking, hey, maybe we can improve our core product, which was a mobile app. And so we started building a sensor, a way of automating that workflow using IoT sensors and data analytics. And that's how our second product, which is called Therma, was born. Therma is short for Temperature, Humidity, Energy, Remote Monitoring Application. That's Therma. Oh, wow. That took a lot of workshops to come up with that (laughs) acronym. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, team of nerds, as we joke. But but we discovered uh, as we were building Therma, that was in 2019 in the, in the fall and winter, it turned out that refrigeration was much more than just a compliance issue. It had huge climate implications. There's a lot of waste around product spoilage, energy consumption, and refrigerant leaks. And that's when we realized, oh, wow, this is a much bigger social problem than just compliance. And we began working on it from a climate standpoint. So in the last two years, we've transformed the company. Now we're a climate-focused startup building smart refrigeration, clean cooling tools, um, still advancing health and safety 
our technology does improve safety and compliance, but it's just part of a much bigger opportunity around climate and sustainability. Um, so that's the journey. Yeah. And, and by the way, for everybody listening, food waste is a massive problem related to climate change. I think we focus very often on electric vehicles and all transport and flying and, and so on. But uh, I think actually food waste is a bigger, bigger emitter of CO2 than uh, actually aviation sector. Um, if I remember correctly, we'll, we'll fact check that afterwards. You may know more on the facts on that, but it's just like a massive global problem. And a big leverage, if we fix food waste, we can fix climate change as a result, or at least a big chunk of it, right? I was shocked by just how much food waste is part of the you know, climate uh, crisis. A third of all food that gets produced is thrown out. Uh, one third, you know, which is just a massive number. And a big portion of that is because of supply chain issues. Um, BCG had a, a piece a few years ago, kind of a, a detailed report about the food waste crisis where they said um, of the 1.6 trillion in food that's thrown out, about 11% of that is in storage and handling in the supply chain. So that's still, you know, a big, big number. You know, we're talking about $160 billion uh, of, of product a year. That's actually addressable. That's avoidable. And we're working on that piece of it. We're trying to find ways to use technology to reduce that waste, whether it's up near the fork or up in the farm or down at the fork, you know, all through that supply chain using monitoring and analytics. But um, it's not just food waste, Michael. I mean, we also discovered that uh, refrigerants, these chemicals that go into cooling, they are often emitted and released when refrigeration assets go down. That was something I was surprised to learn. And when I was growing up in the 90s, the refrigerants that were being used in the world, they used to heat the ozone layer. They were these ozone-depleting chemicals. And so we talked about the pole, the South Pole, having a hole in the ozone layer. Uh, well, the world came together uh, through the UN Montreal Protocol and banned the use of ozone-depleting refrigerants in 98. But the chemicals that replace them, though they don't eat the ozone layer, they're ultra-warming. They warm between 1,000 and 11,000 times more than CO2. And those are legal, and they're used pretty much all over the world today, uh, except in Europe where they were transitioning to naturals that are much cleaner. But most of the world's using these very warming refrigerants, and most people don't know that. I didn't realize how big a single source of emissions that was. Project Drawdown, which studies climate change and every year has a ranking of 80 solutions to climate change, in 2019, they listed refrigerants as the number one addressable solution to climate change in terms of impact potential out of 80 solutions. That's when I started thinking about Therma being a climate company because I read that report in the fall and winter of 19 and said, oh my God, we could actually help reduce refrigerant leaks through our sensors. That's massive. That's even bigger than we thought with food waste alone. And so that's really when the company started to take off as a climate, as a climate startup. Got it. Uh, amazing. And, and has there been a lot of focus on this? I guess, like, in terms of a driver for companies to use this, it's really kind of um, a money-saving machine if they use your product, right? Um, but, like, did, has there been a lot of focus or how has that evolved over time? Obviously, I think in a general knowledge, I didn't really know that. I didn't know how... Uh, how dangerous these refrigerants were for climate change. So I feel like uh, maybe you still need to do a lot of education there all the time or do the companies like uh, quite aware of it? 
No, I think there's a lot of education needed. Uh, I was, um, you know, I was fortunate to speak at the uh, at the UN uh, COP26 uh, event in Glasgow. I spoke on the New York Times stage last October, uh, and uh, my co-founder also spoke. Um, I gave a talk on uh, climate technology. We were amongst the only people at that event that were coming from the cooling industry. There were folks from electric vehicles and micromobility, food alternatives and uh, protein substitutes, um, all kinds of uh, battery technologies, uh, potential carbon sequestration technologies, but almost no one from the cooling industry was there, which is kind of, I think, indicative of how underappreciated the cooling drivers are in the climate crisis. I think that's shifting. I do think that's changing. Uh, the Washington Post had an investigative piece last year on refrigerants, where they actually had undercover investigators go out to supermarkets in the U.S. and they documented the leakage rates and showed that the leakage rates were much higher than they're legally allowed to be. But this was happening all over the country. And because refrigerants are cheap, businesses don't usually have a huge economic impact with refrigerant leaks. It's not an economic problem for them. And so it's a classic issue where unless you can figure out a way to tie a solution to an economic ROI driver, very hard to get people to change unless there's regulation. And the US historically has been very lax on regulating refrigerants. Europe has been much more strict, which is why they moved to naturals. China, India, most of Africa, Latin America, and the US are still very, very lax on their regulation. We've been really excited to discover that our sensors are able to detect when equipment, when refrigeration equipment is likely going to go down. And that actually matters to a business owner. They don't want their equipment to fail because when it fails, they have service disruption. They have to spend a lot of money on last minute, last mile repair. And if it happens on a night or a weekend, they might lose a lot of expensive product. So we use the fact that our sensors can help catch equipment downtime to drive behavior change and to encourage ROI positive investment in these sensors. It just so happens that some of the times that refrigeration goes down are because of refrigerants leaking. It's one of the reasons why refrigeration goes down. So in the process of catching equipment downtime early, we happen to reduce the leakage rate that would continue. It's kind of an indirect way of catching refrigerant leakage without selling that as a value proposition directly. And we're, we're thrilled about that because I think that is one powerful way to align sustainability with profitability. You know, we have to be pragmatic about this. Expecting businesses just to do things because they're pro-climate, if there's not an ROI, is very hard. But I think Therma is taking off and done really well. We went from 100 to 10,000 sensors in two years, and we're going from 10,000, hopefully, to 25 and then 100,000. Uh, and we're just scratching the surface of refrigeration. I think it's because we are easily able to say, hey, this is an ROI-positive decision. From an economic standpoint, you should put these things in to reduce addressable waste and downtime. And there's a there's dollars around that. So um, that that's kind of philosophically how I think lots of technology can transform the world. You've got to align with incentives, and then you can get a lot of great things done. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm uh, really passionate about that topic and combining the profitability, the value proposition for the customer, and why would they would buy it with the impact. Um, 
Um, I love to always dig uh, deeper into the actual technology as well. We haven't covered much of that yet. So we know it's sensors. We know it's sensors for basically fridges, industrial fridges, I assume, in many cases, or in most cases. Um, But talk us through how the tech actually works. Is this multiple sensors that sense different things? Uh, What are you detecting? And then I assume there's some sort of software slash kind of notification element as well uh, what is the action that is being produced uh, based on the sensors yeah a- absolutely so today uh, the technology consists of hardware and software um, and we're expanding on the on, on both of those in this kind of next round of, of product innovation and growth uh, the sensors use a type of uh, connectivity called long-range radio LoRa to get signal out of the inside of refrigeration. Historically, you couldn't get a signal out of the inside of a fridge or a freezer wirelessly because Bluetooth and Wi-Fi don't work. The side of the fridge or the freezer has steel and aluminum siding. That acts like a Faraday cage. It blocks a lot of electromagnetic radiation from getting through. We were able to use a new type of connectivity to get reliable signal to continuously carry using ultra-low bandwidth radio. And so first, the first kind of focus of our innovation was to make sure we could get a, a wireless signal out reliably. And that was, I think, really a differentiator for us. And one of the reasons why most of the refrigeration supply chain doesn't have sensors today. The tech just didn't work until a couple of years ago. Generation one IoT couldn't get signal out. Uh, and so that's why McDonald's and Starbucks and Marriott and Whole Foods don't have wireless sensors in their refrigeration today. So we were able to take this uh, connectivity layer and then build software on top of that. And the software stack consists of mobile apps uh, and web applications and then data tools. The mobile apps allow you to see where and when things are set. It lets you get notified if there's outages or downtime early. Uh, so we use you know phone uh, calls, uh, text messages, in-app notifications as an alarm to get people notified, especially when there's critical failure events uh, happening, and especially when they're happening outside of service intervals, like on a night or a weekend. That's one way to catch lots of downtime, getting people to know so they can get in there and fix things or move product around. On the desktop application, we have reporting and, and threshold setting. That allows you to see what's going on with all your perishables. From a compliance standpoint, that's critical. If you're uh, preparing a product or storing product or serving product, you need to make sure it stays in very tight bands from a food safety and product safety standpoint. And our customers take that really seriously. We have uh, national brands that make everything from nutraceuticals to seafood to proteins to dairy, all of which are very temp sensitive. And um, of course, the other opportunity beyond just monitoring and alerting is to actually drive optimization. And that's where our data tools come in. So we've started building out a couple of data tools, one of which lets you get early warnings when equipment is going to go down, a kind of predictive insight. Uh, where you can actually get a notification if a piece of equipment looks like it's performing improperly. And we can tell that because we're measuring temperature and humidity directly. The temperature and humidity time series gives you indications of when the equipment's actually having problems based on the amplitude and the fluctuation. And that's how we start driving predictive insights using time series data. And the more and more locations and more and more assets we track, the better our predictive models can get. But I'm really excited Michael, about where we're headed, which is energy optimization. So the new frontier for us is helping businesses identify ways to reduce the energy needed for cooling. Today, most of the world runs refrigeration 
in a kind of, quote, dumb way, which is uh, whether you're a business or a consumer, for the last hundred years, we've basically bought refrigeration, we've plugged it in the wall, we've set a set point, and we've left it until the thing breaks. <laughs> That's how refrigeration is run. Well, it turns out that you don't need to have refrigeration running 24-7, and you don't need it to be at a constant set point. Product can stay cold for a certain amount of time. It can actually hold cooling effect. And in that sense, refrigeration can be like a battery. The product inside acts like a battery and holds energy state. We leave in the business world, there are 90 million refrigerators. In the consumer world, about 1.4 billion. We leave all of those assets as fully charged batteries all the time. And today, Therma is experimenting with temporary discharges where we might turn refrigeration down or turn it off for short bursts of time in response to energy price, in response to weather events, in response to utility markets and electricity grids needing extra demand back. And so the idea of reducing load and reducing energy consumption in an asset like refrigeration is pretty new. It's pretty novel. Others have done this with, with different assets like uh, thermostats. If you think about Nest, uh, Google Nest, is a smart thermostat that can dynamically turn you know, energy use up and down. For example, when you leave the house, it might say, okay, we don't need to have as much air conditioning. We can raise the thermostat a degree or two. Classic example of a smart asset. Well, with refrigeration, we don't do that today. We don't vary and dynamically manage these assets. They're all dumb. They're all plugged in with a constant set point. But energy is more expensive in the day than it is at night. If we can cool at night when energy is cheaper and turn it off for partially during the day, the battery effect can let the product stay cold and still save you money as an energy uh, user. And what's beautiful, I think, about this idea is it's great for businesses. It saves money on the energy bill, but it also reduces the carbon footprint of the asset. And if with our monitoring product as a base layer, we can guarantee that the product's not getting too warm and spoiling and having a compliance problem. And so it builds on top of our monitoring product as a second layer, an energy optimization solution. So that's kind of some of the direction we're headed. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that by measuring the energy consumption of the asset along with the temperature, our ability to predict when it's going to go down gets better. So our ability to get refrigerant leak caught early will get better because we're going to be able to get the energy data as well. So it's actually going to help us reduce, hopefully, all three drivers of emissions, food waste, energy waste, and refrigerant leaks. Just a really quick break from this episode to let you know a little bit more about our podcast producer and content agency, Content Multiplied. With all the moving pieces of a business, you can't be stuck managing and creating new content all the time. That's why I've started using Myla and her team at Content Multiplied. It's really an all-in-one content management and repurposing solution that can handle all your content needs. Visit them at contentmultiplied.com today. Contentmultiplied.com. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Amazing. And I heard you mention there that uh, obviously the number of consumer fridges is, is much higher in, in the billions. Um, does that mean that you see that as a future for your company where you may be selling components or technology to those manufacturers of consumer fridges or somehow tapping into that market as well? I mean, it's a it's an excellent strategic question, Michael. I think right now we're very focused on business refrigeration, what we call commercial refrigeration. Um, there are 90 million of these units in the world. 
Almost none of them have sensors. Almost no one in the world today has optimized these assets. So, you know, we've got 10,000 sensors in the world. We're barely scratching the surface. If we had 100,000, we'd barely be scratching the surface. There's so much opportunity. And, and I think one thing I was struck by two years ago when I started working on refrigeration is that there's actually a huge amount of growth going on in refrigeration. And the reason is because more and more people around the world want perishable product that refrigeration enables. More and more people around the world, in the developing world especially, want fruits and vegetables, protein, and, and higher value content, fresher and locally sourced goods. And then, of course, when you add into that drugs, plasma, blood, and vaccines, all of those require refrigeration too. So refrigeration is growing massively as a sector. It's got 15% year-over-year growth happening, mostly because lots of the developing world doesn't have refrigeration today. And that's one of the reasons we got really excited, and I think our investors got really excited. There's a lot of growth coming. It's already a big source of inefficiency and climate change. We have to make it more efficient if we want to kind of avoid another catastrophic effect. And so I think there's, there's a lot of you know, humanitarian benefits to making refrigeration better and more accessible. It can enable folks that don't have access to perishables to get access to them, uh, whether those are food or pharmaceuticals. Got it. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm amazing. Uh, like lots to do still there. And let's talk about that. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs uh, listening to this podcast and wondering what role can they play in all this, right? And I think whoever I speak to, especially related to climate change, um, just tells the same story. Like the problem is so big. Like we don't even mind having like 20 competitors because the problem is so big that it's going to be very hard for one company to solve all of the problem, right? Even, I mean, you're not trying to solve climate change or all, 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 all elements of climate change. You're trying to solve one specific problem. And even that is huge, right? So, um, I'd love to get your thinking a little bit around people. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. Uh, I, I'm so excited by the by the remark because I completely agree. But but please continue. I'd love to hear where you're taking it. No, that's good. I, I guess where I was taking it is like, uh, what is your thinking for people that are entrepreneurs? Either they're in the process of kind of even just ideation and figuring out what what they they want to build. Or people that are even earlier and they're like just clear, okay, I want to be part of the solution to climate change. I have some entrepreneurial skills and entrepreneurial drive in me, but how can I be part of that solution? What's your view on that? I love the question. I think we need so many people to be working on socially impactful problems like sustainability and the climate crisis that there's, there's literally no better time to get started than today. Um, you know, the, today is the youngest you will ever be, as my dad keeps reminding me. Um, so, you know, you might as well take advantage of the youth and the energy, whatever stage in life you're at. Um, we, um, we have a podcast that we started two years ago at Therma called Point .01, which my co-founder named. The concept for Point .01 was we need a thousand companies to succeed in order to solve the climate crisis. The podcast is a climate tech innovation pod, but it's really trying to celebrate others working on a, a problem of this magnitude. So 0.01 is the likelihood of any one of those thousand companies making it to being a massive player. But the point is, I think these kinds of problems are going to require collective action at massive scale. And I think any entrepreneur or any 
you know, innovator that wants to get started, you can find dozens of interesting companies by going to climate tech meetups, checking out newsletters like Climate Tech VC or groups like Work on Climate. Um, happy to connect folks with any of those if you'd like. I'm friends at all of them. And I'm sure if you just Google for two seconds climate um, communities, you'll find folks um, uh, running or building or uh, joining organizations. So I would say there's more work than anyone can possibly do on a problem like climate change. For our generation, if you are looking for problems that matter, um, that's the reason I got into tech. I was never interested in building tech uh, purely to improve, um, you know, advertising efficiency or purely to sell more widgets on a e-commerce store. That just never appealed to me as a great use of life energy. I was interested in making regulation and compliance better and helping improve public health and safety. And that brought me into social impact and civic tech. And from there, uh, the climate crisis began to kind of grow over the last six, seven years, and the product we were building moved us into a sustainability mode and allowed us to start working on that. So it was kind of organic, uh, no pun intended, in the food supply chain. But I think you can find opportunities to start businesses, to join businesses, to be part of nonprofits, um, whatever modality works for you. There's a huge ecosystem emerging and lots of capital. There's more capital around climate uh, and, and, and sustainability and impact that I've, you know, I think anyone has seen. Um, and I was a former, you know, private equity investor and have a bunch of friends in VC. Um, I think you'll see the data pretty clearly. We've never had this much funding going into climate and, and, and clean tech as we've had in the last 24 months. It's just exploding, right? And I think the message is probably everybody, whatever role they have in a society can make a change, whether that is policy, etc. But I'm super excited about entrepreneurship. And, you know, uh, you may not know, I, I have a, a background studying politics in undergrad. I didn't make it to the White House as you did, but <laughs> I made it to some internships with the German embassy and so on. So I got a taste of that world. And um, I think there's an important role to play in that world as well. But there's something really exciting about entrepreneurship in terms of actually just bringing about developing the solutions um, I think, I don't know what your view is on that, but my view is that politics or politicians rarely get the courage to truly lead and push things like completely forward. Uh, in the end, they usually tend to react to what's happening on the ground as well. So there may be some, obviously, uh, goals that we've been setting, but in terms of actual implementation, it's the entrepreneurs on the ground that actually make these uh, the, the achieving the, the the climate goals actually happen right the entrepreneurs like yourself i would love to get your take on this though because you've seen both the worlds uh, quite intensely as well i think it's a very um you know it's a very loaded topic um you know loaded because people have very strong views about theories of social change um half my friends work in the public sector in government or regulation or policy And I'm a former lawyer and went to law school thinking that's where the path was taking me. And then the other half of my friends work in entrepreneurship as innovators, as entrepreneurs, as investors. Um, and I think um, I grew up in the West Coast in California, but then went to the East Coast for uh, 12 years. There's a little bit in the US of an East Coast, West Coast divide about some of these topics at times. I actually think you need both. I believe that there's a huge role for the public sector to play in solving a problem like the climate crisis. Um, just like any social externality or social, I'm not anti-government. I'm very pro 
smart government and, and effective regulation. I think many, many, many thoughtful people are trying to build uh, regulatory frameworks, uh, set the rules of the road, advance legislation, encourage and enable social action and private sector action in the government and in the public sector. And I admire those people. It's a hard job. It doesn't pay that well. Um, and it's really not, it's often quite thankless. You don't get a lot of recognition. Uh, not too many people get invited to join podcasts who are working on policy initiatives, um, you know, for, for three or four years. At the same time, without unleashing the force of capitalism and the power of innovation, being able to build the future, literally building the future, you have to unleash that at scale in order to take on something as big as the climate crisis. It's not enough to create better regulation and more effective legislation. We also need to fundamentally change the way we consume and utilize resources and engage in activity. That's going to require a huge amount of innovation technologically and um, you know, economically. And so I think there's a huge role for innovation that's driven by and enabled by financial capital and human capital. And that's where entrepreneurship comes in. You can't um, create future technologies and scale them without really thoughtful people who are really dedicated, spending lots of time tinkering, experimenting, failing, figuring things out, and then scaling. And that's where I think entrepreneurship and technology entrepreneurship in particular can be a big part of social change on a problem like climate, but other problems. And, and I'm always amazed by the kinds of technologies that are emerging, whether it's novel ways of doing carbon sequestration or wrapping paper that helps reduce food waste in your fridge. It's just amazing the kind of innovation that's available and possible when people put their minds and hearts and energy to it. Love it. Love it. Um, let's go through some lessons learned in your entrepreneurial journey and what others can learn from those. And I asked you uh, before we started recording, like, uh, what do you think have been some of the hardest lessons you had to learn that were maybe very difficult at the time or almost seemed like they could have killed the company or they could have had a really bad effect on you? Is there anything like like painful lessons that you had to learn through building Therma or any of your previous uh, work? Oh, where to start? Where to start? Painful lessons are aplenty. I mean, there's so much uh, I think that you can't, um, you can't really appreciate till you experience it. I think that's one of the reasons, um, you know, why uh, so many entrepreneurs or former entrepreneurs become coaches and mentors and investors. I see it with a lot of my mentors and uh, investors and advisors. They've been through the trenches. They've been through the battles and journey and have kind of developed all this, uh, you know, knowledge and learning and they try and impart it back because you just want to help people not uh, not go through that. I would say I'm early in the journey. I mean, you know, we're a 75-person team. We've raised, you know, 25 million in capital to date. It's still pretty early. It's definitely bigger than when it was just me um, starting the business. And we had, you know, no cash. <laughs> we had $50,000 of capital uh, that I'd put into the business. So it's definitely further along. But um, I think one lesson that I've been internalizing is that the quality of the talent and the quality of the team matter more than anything else. I mean, really, uh, the ability to work with people who are better than you in whatever it is you're not best at is key. 
you have to figure out what your superpowers are, what you're really good at, and focus on those. And then find collaborators, find team members, find partners, find co-founders, um, find advisors who are better at things that you are not exceptional at or you are not best at. And they should be so good at those things that you can just let them run with it. And that's, I think, one of the things that really separates exceptional companies from everybody else. They have this ability to recruit exceptionally talented people who are really good at the things that the team uh, prior to them joining is not as good at as them. And if you can keep leveling up, it has this virtuous cycle effect where the team just gets better and better and stronger and stronger. That creates more insights, more velocity, more growth potential, more ambition. That allows more financial capital to come to work. That allows better and more people to join. And then that becomes a, a, a you know a virtuous cycle. And then the opposite happens when you don't do that. When you hire or or recruit or join with folks where you feel like you're not sure how good they are or they're not as good as you might be at tasks that you can't be doing because you're already focused on the things you're best at, then you end up having to do four jobs, five jobs. There's a lack of trust, a lot of misunderstandings. Then you end up with all this internal politics. Things go the other way and it becomes harder and harder to hire great people and you have to hire whoever you can get and that just continues a vicious cycle. So I would say many people told me when I was getting started, really focus on who you're working with, really focus on who you're collaborating with. Like it didn't quite make sense to me at that time why they focused on that point um, so much, but that now is starting to make a lot more sense, you know, still early in the journey. And it goes back to that Steve Jobs quote, I guess on A players and B players, I assume as well, right? It goes hand in hand in terms of, uh, you know, A players hire A players, B player hire B players hire C players, etc. Um, I'm I'm wondering how you view uh, view this uh, like on a very operational basis because I think what I found in my own entrepreneurial journey as well uh, before doing Impact Hustlers I set up another company and helping um, uh, impact companies recruit talent and <laughs> at that point I had actually done an entrepreneurship program I learned all the tools lean startup everything. But actually operationalizing it is a whole nother level, right? So reading the Steve Jobs quote or listening to you now is one thing, but then how do I actually make it happen? And I think the tension there with what you just mentioned is as a startup, you have a, a scarcity of money initially for sure, but most of the time until you're not a startup anymore, you have like not a lot of money to spend. Then at the same time, you have a lot of time pressure to actually validate that you have a real solution that people want to buy and then you need to hire your team under the time pressure with little money and you want to hire a players right so then you have this time pressure is like oh i want to hire somebody as soon as possible i need somebody tomorrow uh, and you're meeting these people and they're like they're good but not great should i just hire them so we can move at least or should i just wait it out and you know, like this tension, how do you manage that tension in uh, operational terms? I think it's very hard. I don't think it ever goes away fully. I mean, I think that there's a um, there's another framework that my colleague, uh, our CTO, Andrew Hager, likes to use, which is um, you have three buckets, you know, or three, uh, you know, circles in a Venn diagram, fast, good, and cheap. And you can get, you know, two of the three <laughs> at all times. Yeah, that's it. 
you just got to accept that reality, isn't it? Exactly. I don't think that really goes away. Um, you know, even, you know, as you get more and more scale under you, I think these like underlying tensions are just part of like the nature of organizational building and life. So it's, I think really understanding where you are and where one is in any given moment is key. Are you in a mode where you need to show progress, even if it's not long-term sustainable because it's going to require an early MVP product to be rebuilt uh, and refactored? But you can show the progress so you can raise capital so you can hire folks to rebuild it and scale it and make it more long-term sustainable. Or are you in a place where you have a mature offering and you need to really develop um, refined features that can make the difference between being the number three player and the number one player? In which case, good probably matters more than fast because you're trying to really break through and become you know, something novel or something truly differentiated. In that case, you might need to spend more and, and make it – you know good, but you're not going to get cheap if you really want it fast. So those are the kinds of like, I think, trade-offs that have to be dynamically managed at all times. And the, the best entrepreneurs and the best strategists, I think, are really good at knowing exactly what they need at any given time and quickly changing when that changes. So sometimes you need to go from fast and good to, you know, fast and cheap. Uh, and and you know, sometimes you need to go you know, and go slow um, and and be willing to spend more, but be exceptional. Those kinds of dynamic calibrations are hard. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, it's 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 a bit of the kind of philosophical, um, you know, know thyself, you know, the Zen or world wisdom kind of common saying, like once you know thyself, all is possible. I think uh, it's true in startup land and entrepreneurship as well. If you know yourself and know your organization and where you are, you can then figure out like what is it you need. But that requires being really honest with yourself, which is maybe the second thing I would I would say uh, as a lesson learned. You know, be candid with yourself. Super hard to do because we have to kind of constantly be inventing the future. We're constantly selling the dream. I spend most of my day talking to investors or recruits or my team and saying how great things are going to be and how awesome the future could be and what the potential is. But then you have to kind of pause on that to actually ask yourself, well, what is working and what isn't? And being really candid about what isn't can be hard when you're spending most of the rest of your day trying to tell people how great things are going to be. So that, that tension is, I think, really hard too. Got it. Uh, amazing. That's a good lesson. I have probably two more questions for you, so brief ones. But I think one one thing I was told uh, a year half, uh, you've cracked the code of a balanced life. I'm going to put it out there like that. Maybe, I don't know if you feel like that, but like you have a wife, you have kids, a baby actually, and and a dog, and you spend, you've managed to get a bit of balance in your life where you're able to spend your weekends not working. And so I'd love to talk a bit about that, especially in the impact space where it, I, I meet so many people that are true missionaries in the sense that they really deeply care about the problem they're solving, even more than the average startup founder out there. And they really want to see a solution. So the danger is that you're burning yourself out in the process because you think, start thinking, I need to work on this seven days a week, 24-7 um, so yeah, what's your view on this? How did you manage to get a bit of a balance in your life and still be very ambitious with what you're doing? I mean, I think it's a very thoughtful question, Michael, and not an easy one. 
And, you know, depending on the day of the week or the month, if you ask my wife, she might give you a different answer as to how, how well I'm doing on that attempt. But um, I think um, we've been together for over 20 years. We met as freshmen in college in 2001. So we've had the good fortune, um, and I feel very lucky, of also being, you know, best friends. We've become really close growing up together, essentially, from, from college on. So um, we do have a, a, you know, a baby who's under a year old right now. So the house is full. And apologies if you're hearing her in the background. Uh, she's been playing and jumping around recently. Oh, that's great. That's great. I think it's really about figuring out what your priority is at any given time, in any given phase in life. And that's not – it's very personal. And priorities change and can be dynamic, even even in the micro. Like I try and prioritize work for certain hours in the day for certain days in the week. And during those hours, I try to make sure I'm really present, really available, really efficient. And um, And then at a certain point, certain hours and certain days, I try and prioritize something else, whether it's spending time with my baby – um, hanging out with my wife, going for you know a drink with an old buddy, working out. And I, I see that as the essence of balancing. It's about relative prioritization, dynamically managed. It's not some abstract construct like work-life balance. It's really tactical um, and really about knowing what and when one is doing things. And the times I feel worst and least out of balance are when I can't decide what I'm prioritizing or tell myself I'm prioritizing one thing, but I'm actually acting as if I'm prioritizing something else, whether that's taking a phone call while I'm with my baby, which I try not to do, or um, missing a work event because some last minute uh, personal situation came up. So I think um, uh, my dad is one of my you know all-time favorite humans. He's someone I've looked up to since I was a kid. He's just someone I think has real deep wisdom. He's often said to me, Life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's something he said to me for as long as I can remember. I do think there's some of that too. If you want to have positive social impact or just want to be effective, um, try and remind yourself it's a marathon. And so set yourself up for, for, for good pacing so that you can you know, race through the finish line. And that's something that I'm still trying to learn. And as a new dad, it's been challenging this past year. Also, uh, also having a startup that I'm building, but I think it's uh, it's something I, I my wife is really good at it, and relatively speaking, much better than me. And I try and learn from her. She works out five days a week, and she gets up at five a.m. to do it, so she gets the workout in. But she makes sure she takes care of that before anything starts with the day, so she's at least had that time for herself. That's I think an example of another type of prioritizing, which is being there for yourself, which a lot of us as entrepreneurs don't do. You know, we don't end up taking care of our bodies and our minds because there's so much else to do. Yeah, absolutely. How how old is your kid? Uh, she is eight months old. Eight months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't have kids, but I've seen from friends. It's uh, it's yeah, it's an intense period. I cannot imagine actually uh doing uh, being an entrepreneur founder and uh uh having a small child at the same time i think uh, big respect for that um so last quick question with a quick answer on this uh is uh how do you imagine looks the world uh, does the world look like in 10 years if uh, your company succeeds if your mission succeeds how would you like it to look like 
I would love if we are part of a movement of uh, companies that are taking um, the climate crisis seriously and building solutions that might seem obvious or might seem, um, you know, uh, you know, hard to imagine why they didn't exist. But I would love for us to be one of those solutions that when people look back on cooling and refrigeration as it's growing in 10 years and say, oh, yeah, we have dynamic refrigeration that doesn't waste product, that doesn't leak refrigerants, that can be turned on and off dynamically to reduce energy load uh, and reduce grid, grid stress to improve resilience. I would love if Therma is mentioned, you know, in the same sentence as other, you know, climate uh, innovators and climate technology leaders saying, yeah, that's that's great. They're helping humans and helping advance human health by making food and pharmaceuticals available to more people in the world. But we're doing it without sacrificing the planet's health. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Manik, and I uh, really appreciate your time and uh, all the best for the journey ahead. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, appreciate everyone listening in. If you want to learn more or chat, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Monic at hellotherma.com. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.